Well, how many of you know that when you get to know someone like better, like the better that you get to know someone, you realize how really messed up and broken that person is. Like when you get married, you'll see this to be true more than maybe any other time in your life. Like the things that you thought when you were dating, like were really cute and you admired and, and, and you just thought were so special and, and cool about that person. You, you get married and all of a sudden now those things annoy you. In fact, they can even enrage you and fill you with like anger and wrath towards the person that you love and are married to for better or worse till death do you part. Okay. So like, let me give you some examples here. Girls, you think that guy like running around in sweats and a hat like all day every day oh it's so cute like he wears sweats he's got his slides on like he's so cute but then you're married and you're going out for your five-year anniversary and he's still showing up in sweats and like a ball hat and you're like okay that was cute but that's over like we're grown we're married we're on our anniversary date you need to dress up okay time to time to grow up that used to be cute but now it's just downright annoying in fact it makes me really mad like you need to go change like right now like go home and change and come back like you're ready for our anniversary guys like you see that girl walking around in her heels or her nice jeans or that nice top or her hair's looking all good you know whatever it's cute now it's hot now, but you get married and now you both are paying for all of those things. And what used to be cute and hot now is like annoying and like even kind of makes you mad. And you're like, why did you get that? And when did you get that? And how much was it? Or you start checking your bank account and you're like, huh, the, we spent this much this week at Target. Honey, why did we spend $500 at Target this week? Like that used to be cute. Your apartment was really cute, but now it's like, it's our stuff and it's our money. And it's not so cute anymore. Like it's making me kind of angry. In fact, one of the greatest examples of this, like in our marriage was when we were dating, neither one of us liked to cook. I had grown up like in a baseball family, all, all of my brothers, me and all my brothers played baseball. So we were going from one practice to the next. You can imagine with four of us in baseball, one game to the next, one practice to the next. And so we were living on fast food, like Burger King and Taco Villa and KFC, like those were our places. We lived on those things. So we ate them in the car, like from one practice to the next and, and from this game to, to this game. And my wife, grew up in a family that, that did cook at home, but she hated it. Like she hates cooking. So we're dating and we're going off on all these dates and we're eating out. We don't really ever cook for each other, but we're going on all these dates and, and my favorite place is Outback Steakhouse. And so we're going to Outback all the time and we're eating all this food and it's great food. And then you start checking your bank account and you're like, huh, where did, where did all of our money go? Like, why, why, do we have no, why don't we have any money? Oh, it's because we eat out for every single meal. So now we're married. Neither one of us like to cook. I can't cook. My wife can kind of cook. I maybe shouldn't have said that out loud, but, but my wife can, can kind of cook, but neither one of us like it. And so we go out all the time. Well, what was once cute and a lot of fun is now a source of frustration and even anger and sometimes resentment because of how much money we spend going out to eat. On a serious note, one of the things my wife really admired about me when we were dating was my work ethic. Even in college, I had like three different jobs. I was working like all the time. And she thought like that was really 
admirable. And she thought, no matter what, this guy's going to do whatever it takes to provide for me and, and, and our family one day if we get married. And so she really admired that about me. Well, we're married. I'm a new youth pastor and I'm working constantly. I mean, constantly. I'm always gone. I'm still taking night classes to finish my degree in Christian ministry. So I'm working all day. I'm at school multiple nights a week. When you're in youth ministry, you're going to games and you're doing retreats and camps and mission trips, all these kinds of things. And so I was working all the time. And what she at once, when we were dating, had once admired and respected. And even she said, attracted her to me. Like she found that attractive in me. Now we're married. We've been together longer. She knows me in a deeper way. And now it's something that is harmful and hurting our marriage. In fact, I came home one night to find my wife on the ground sobbing because I had neglected her so much, even for something that was a great thing in my life, in our life. You see, something that she was attracted to in the beginning turned out to be something when we got married and further down the road as you get to know someone and the, the brokenness inside of, of someone, as you get to know that better, you begin to realize, whoa, 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 that's not so attractive anymore. In fact, it can almost be harmful. And that's true for everybody. That's true for every person. The more that you get to know any person, the longer that you get to know, the, the deeper that you get to know any person, the more you realize how broken and how messed up that person really is. And I'm the exact same way. The longer that my wife and I have been together, the more she realizes like how broken and messed up I really am and vice versa. And you begin to realize, no, this person does not complete me. They do not satisfy me. They're not even enough for me because no person or thing can ever be enough. People are, are broken and messed up. And the more you get to know people, the more you realize how, how broken and messed up they really are. But with God, it's the total opposite. The more you get to know God, the deeper you, get, you go with God, the deeper in your relationship that you go with God, the more you will find he is perfect and satisfying. The more fulfilling you will find he really is the deeper you go with him, the more you get to know God. And so that's our hope, that's our, our prayer in this series is as we talk about these names of God, the way God has revealed himself to us in the scripture. And the Greek word for name is anoma, which means to know. And so as we get to know these names of God in the scripture, we get to know God, we go deeper with him and our wonder of who he is grows, our worship grows, our love for him grows as we go deeper and deeper with him and we find that he is more perfect and more satisfying and more fulfilling than we ever could have possibly imagined. And so that's the point of this series is to get to know God, it's to go deeper with him, it's to understand a little bit more about him that we might be even more satisfied in him and in his presence and in this relationship that we've been created and designed for this love relationship with God.
And so as we get to know these names of God, we get to know God better. And so here's where we've been. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. Two weeks ago, we talked about El Elkanah, which is Hebrew for the Lord is jealous. And you can uh, catch up on those things on our podcast, on our website, if you weren't here for those things. Then two weeks ago, or last week rather, uh, Josh Young, a Raider Church in Texas Tech alumni, baseball alumni, uh, was in town and we talked and he came and shared with us for a little bit. And so tonight we're going to finish this series called El Nombre with this name of God, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And in the scripture, every time we see El Shaddai, or most of the time anyways, it says El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, God Almighty. And so we're going to look at what does that mean? And really the depth of El Shaddai and what God being almighty means. And here's basically what it means. And here's one of the deeper meanings of El Shaddai. It means the all sufficient one. Now, if you want to follow along with this, we're going to be in a lot of places tonight as we break down this name, a lot of verses, uh, lots of points as we get to know this aspect and this part of, of God's being and his nature. And so go to RaiderChurch.com on your phone, uh, click message notes. You can follow along with us. The verses are there. Uh, the points will all be there so that you can uh, email that to yourself, save it, whatever you want to do. And uh, so, uh, so definitely go there. We're going to be a lot in the book of Genesis and, and some different places as we look at where all this name occurs and, and what what it means in those passages, in that context, when we do see this name El Shaddai, the all sufficient one. And when we say the all sufficient one, here's what we mean. We mean God is sufficient in himself. God is sufficient in himself, which means he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anybody to complete him or for him to be enough for him to exist or he doesn't need anything. He is totally sufficient in and of himself. And so we're going to break down what this means as we look at the different places this name occurs. And the first place is here in Genesis 17 verses one through eight. And here's what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, when you read through the book of Genesis, you'll see that oftentimes when God appears to the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he often refers to himself as El Shaddai. This is one of the, like, the most primary names we see God referring to himself as uh, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And so it's important that we get to know El Shaddai and, and who all El Shaddai really is. So God says, I'm El Shaddai, God Almighty, the all-sufficient one. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. And then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, 
to you and to your descendants after you. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. So, so here's the first aspect of God being all sufficient. The all sufficient one is that God is sufficient to bless. God is completely sufficient in and of himself to bless people. And because he's sufficient in and of himself, by his very nature, he wants to bless people. And we see all these different ways that God wants to bless Abram and his descendants. He wants to bless them with land. He wants to bless them with descendants, like with offspring, like with kids and grandkids and, and, and great grandkids. They're going to turn into this huge nation and, and among his descendants are going to be kings. And I'm going to give you this land, this land of Canaan. So I'm going to give you all, I'm going to bless you with all these things. But most importantly, Here's the most important blessing, Abram. I'm going to be your God and you and your descendants are going to be my people. In other words, here's what God was saying. I'm going to bless you with all these things. And those things are great. Land and descendants, family, power, wealth, fame. Your, your descendants are going to be kings. I'm going to bless you with all of these things. But Abram, here's the most important thing I'm going to bless you with. It's a relationship with me. I'm going to be your God and you and your descendants are going to be my people. That's the biggest blessing of all. I'm blessing you with a relationship with myself. Sinful, broken man. I'm going to bless you sinful and broken with a relationship with a God who is holy and pure and righteous and eternal and all powerful. I'm going to bless you with a relationship with myself. You see, it's in the very nature of God to bless because he's all sufficient. He doesn't need anything. And when you're totally sufficient, not needing anything, you're free to bless. And because God is all sufficient, he's sufficient to bless. And he wants to bless people. He wants to bless you in many different ways. But ultimately, the greatest blessing God has for you is a relationship with himself. That's the greatest blessing of all. And we'll talk more about how you can have that relationship with God, but that's the greatest blessing of all. Let, let, let's keep going and see more about El Shaddai. Now God is speaking to Jacob, which is Abraham's uh, grandson. Okay, you got Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob is the son of Isaac. And so now God is speaking to Jacob and he's confirming this covenant. And he says, then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, the all sufficient one. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants and I will give you the land, watch this, and I'm gonna give you this land that I once gave to Abram and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and to your descendants after you. So God's saying, Jacob, the promises and the covenant that I made to your granddad, Abraham, and confirmed with Isaac, I'm confirming with you. I promised Abraham I was going to bless him and his descendants after him, which is you, with land and this relationship and, and these nations that are, gonna, that, that, that are gonna come from his descendants. So I've promised Abraham all these things and I'm confirming this covenant with you. I've given you this land. See, I've given it 
to you, just like I said, just like I told Abraham I would do. So, so watch this. God is sufficient to fulfill. God is sufficient to bless and to make promises. And God is sufficient to fulfill his promise to make good on his word. In fact, the scripture says that every word of God, every word will not return, will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose it was set out for because God is totally all sufficient in and of himself. He can make a promise. He can bless a people. He can promise future blessings. And then he can actually fulfill that promise himself because he's all sufficient and he can do whatever he wants to do. That's what it means to be all sufficient in and of yourself. So here's what this means. God can be trusted. You can trust El Shaddai because he's all sufficient. He is sufficient to bless. He's sufficient to fulfill his promise, to fulfill his word. And we've seen that over and over and over again, all throughout the scripture. God promised Abram, who would become Abraham, descendants and descendants and descendants that would take over the land of Canaan and would have kings in, in their descendants. And, and, and God fulfilled all of that through the nation of Israel. Then God tells this king by the name of David, hey, you're never going to cease to have someone sitting on your throne. And so all in, nation, in Israel's history post-David, we see a descendant of David reigning on the throne. And then Jesus comes, who's a descendant of David, who's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and is now alive in heaven on his throne, reigning as King. God said, you will never cease to have a descendant sitting on the throne. God has fulfilled his word. And now we're told through Jesus and the New Testament writers that one day Jesus is going to return. And he's going to conquer sin and death and, and, and put to death evil and wickedness. He's going to put an end to all of those things forever. He's going to judge everyone who's ever existed. Those who are followers of Jesus will go to eternal paradise that was created for them. And those who have not followed Jesus, the Bible says, will, will go to an eternal punishment, the lake of fire, hell. That was prepared for the devil and his followers. And then Jesus will reign forever and we will be existing forever in what theologians call the eternal state, which is actually when you read the book of Revelation, it's not some you know, fairy tale land and on a cloud, it's actually a new city that comes down out of heaven to a new earth and we exist forever in these new glorified bodies in this new city, new earth, New bodies will live there forever with Jesus in this paradise. And that's what we're told is coming. And we hope in that. Because God has always come through on his word. Because he is able to fulfill every promise he has made. Let's keep going. Now, Jacob is talking to his son, Joseph, and he says, God Almighty, El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful 
And I will multiply your descendants. I will make you a multitude of nations. And I will give this land of Canaan to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. God says this promise that I've made of, of this land that I'm going to give you, it's going to be an everlasting possession to your descendants, to your people. And so here's the, the next aspect of El Shaddai, the all sufficient one is that God is sufficient to sustain. God can sustain physical things in this life, in this reality. And God can do the same thing in you, in your life, in your reality. God said, this land is going to be an everlasting possession. In other words, God was saying, I have the ability, I have the power to sustain my word into the eternity future. Like in your world, in your reality, I have the ability and I am going to sustain you and your descendants in this promise that I have made to you. And so know that El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, is your sustainer for everything in this life. He is your sustainer. That's El Shaddai. That's who God is. Our sustainer forever in all things. But there's more. There's even more to El Shaddai. Watch this. In Genesis 49, may the God of your father help you. Jacob again speaking to Joseph. May the Almighty bless you with the blessings of the heavens above. So Jacob says to Joseph, may God bless you with blessings from heaven, from uh, blessings of the watery depths below and blessings of the breast and womb. So, so here's what Jacob is telling his son, Joseph. God, El Shaddai, is sufficient to satisfy. He's sufficient to satisfy your spiritual needs, like the longing, the spiritual longings in your soul. He's, he's able, he's sufficient to satisfy the deep emotional and mental needs in the depths of your heart and the depths of who you are. And he's able to satisfy, he's sufficient to satisfy the physical needs you have in your day to day life. God is sufficient to satisfy you in all things, in all and every need you have. God is sufficient to satisfy you. But there's still more. Next place we see this name occurs in Psalm 90 verse 2. Moses is speaking here in this psalm. This is a prayer, a song of Moses. And he says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. Moses is saying here, God, you are sufficient to create. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the all-sufficient one, you and you alone are sufficient in and of yourself to create things out of nothing. It's the Latin phrase ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created the universe. And Moses is saying here, El Shaddai, you are the one who's sufficient to create, to give birth to the earth and to the universe. You are the one who created all things. And now science has told us 
that the universe has not always existed. It hasn't existed in to eternity past. In other words, science has now told us that the universe had a beginning, like it began at some point. In other words, the, the universe isn't eternal. It hasn't always existed. It had a beginning. And so the earth, the universe, matter as we know it is not eternal. It came into being, it came into existence at one point. It didn't always exist, which means there had to be something that existed outside of our time and space that created or put into motion our universe and life as we know it. It's called the uncaused cause. There must be at some point in our past, an uncaused cause. Because the law, not theory, the law of cause and effect says that every effect has a cause. And that cause is greater than the energy or the properties of the effect. It's a scientific law. Every effect has a cause. And so since we now know the universe hasn't always existed, in other words, it's not the uncaused cause, that means there must be another uncaused cause that is of greater order, design, beauty, morality, consciousness, emotion, than everything we see and experience here in this universe and we see in this life. Because in the universe and in life, what do we see? We see order, design, beauty, love, emotion. We see a standard of morality. Did you know that no matter where you go on the face of the planet, even in the most remote tribe, no one has ever had contact with in every single one of these places, you know what you always find? It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to rape. It's always wrong to steal. Always. And no matter what people may say, well, I don't really think there's that absolute standard of, of morality. Well, what if it was your daughter? Oh, yeah, I, I, that was, there's something wrong with that. Like, if someone touches my daughter, we got a big problem. That's not okay with me. That's wrong, no matter where you go. So we've got this absolute standard of morality. Where does that come from? Where does our consciousness come from? Where does the order and design in the universe that we see, where does that come from? There must be an uncaused cause that is infinitely more order, design, beauty, love, emotion. That uncaused cause, Moses says here in Psalm 90, is El Shaddai the one who has the power and ability to create out of nothing. Because we now know at a certain point, there was absolutely nothing. Nothing, like no gases, no molecules, no matter. There was nothing and then there was something. And so there has to be an uncaused cause that created or started the something. 
And Moses says here in Psalm 90, that's you, El Shaddai. You're the one who is all sufficient to create. But there's even more. Watch this. Second Chronicles 6, verse 18, Solomon, King Solomon has just built this temple and has dedicated this temple to the Lord. And here's what he says. He says, but will God, El Shaddai, really live on earth among people? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, El Shaddai. How much less this temple that I have built with my hands. And so here we see that El Shaddai, God, is sufficient to overflow. He is sufficient to overflow anything in this universe, including man himself and anything that man puts his hands to. God can and will overflow it because that's who El Shaddai is. Some of you who've grown up in church know Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And towards the end of that verse, those verses in Psalm 23, you remember what he says? He says, you anoint my head with oil my cup, you might remember the word, my cup overflows. You see, that's what God does. He overflows, he overwhelms, he fills things up and it spills out because nothing can contain El Shaddai. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians and says, hey, pray and, and, and ask God, seek God, because he will do immeasurably more than all you can ask or think. He will do immeasurably more. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, and he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so when I sin and when I fall, when I mess up, God's grace abounds even more and over my sin. It fills up and overflows and overwhelms all of my sin to where Paul says in Romans five, so your grace reigns like a king over all my sin because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's overwhelming and it's an overflowing kind of grace that pours out and spills out and covers all my sin because that's who El Shaddai is. And it's the greatest news ever. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I want to remind you of something that's of first importance. Well, Paul, what's, what, what's so important? What's, the most, what's this most important thing, Paul, that you need to remind us of? 1 Corinthians 15, verse three, he says this, that Christ died for our sins. That he was buried and three days later, he rose again. That's what's most important important. And I'm going to remind you of it again and again, because that's what's most important. This weekend, we went to go see a new niece that we had. I was born about a week ago. And so we drove to Fort Worth and, and we saw our, our, our new baby niece. So we drove there Friday, drove back to Lubbock on Saturday because I was preaching at our church on Sunday. And so I, I, I was uh, driving back home and my kids are all asleep in the car. Uh, my wife's in the back seat because her grandmother was with us in the front seat. And so it's about nine o'clock. We're driving to Lubbock. It's dark. Um, everyone's tired. Uh, the kids are asleep. And so it's just me, uh, my wife's grandmother, who we call nanny. And then my wife is sitting in the back seat, in the back seat and she's awake too. And, and we're driving in a Lubbock, we're listening to music, but we're tired and it's kind of, uh, it's dark. And so it's real quiet and we're just listening to the music. 
Well, I was listening to this song. It's an old hymn that Shane and Shane had redone. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And at the end, it says, we'll look full in his glory and grace. And then it goes into kind of shifts and turns into amazing grace. And if you've grown up in church or you've heard the song before, you know the words to that song. It's one of the classic hymns that's ever been written. It says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And we're driving back into Lubbock and the song's playing and I literally, I'm just, I, I am crying, like crying, crying. Listening to the old words of, these, of this song. Talk about God's amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. And then I pray that that great news that Christ has died for our sins never loses its power or emotion in you. You may have grown up hearing that every week of your life. Maybe you didn't. But my prayer is that that good news that Christ has died for our sins will overwhelm you every day. That Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's the greatest news ever. And what a shame it is that those words could ever lose their power or emotion or force in our lives. You know, a lot of times Christians talk about going deeper with God. I wanna, I wanna go deeper. I, I want to hear this you know, deep message that really you know, rocks me. And I, I just want you to know tonight, and I think Paul would tell you from 1 Corinthians 15, it doesn't get any deeper than Christ died for my sins. Was buried in that tomb and rose again, conquering sin and death. It doesn't get any deeper than that. And God forgive us for ever thinking it does. That's El Shaddai, the overflowing and overwhelming one. And here's what's wild is that the Bible says in Genesis one, that you and I were created in his image, in his likeness, man and woman were created. And so there's lots of ways we are like God, created in his image, in that we have emotion, we, we love, we hate injustice, we have consciousness. There's a certain level of morality about us, a, a knowledge of right and wrong. And so in some ways we, we are like God, but in, in infinitely many more ways, we are completely not like God. Like, we are not eternal. God is eternal. He's always existed in eternity past. He'll exist into eternity future. The Bible says you're, you will live, your soul will live eternity into the future. Your soul will be in hell or heaven for all eternity, the Bible says. But you didn't always exist like into eternity past. God is eternal. We are not. 
God is good. The Bible says we're not. Our culture will try to tell us that you're, you're good enough or you're good if you're, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds or that our culture will tell us and even on social media we say you're enough or, or you're, you're worthy. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says you're not enough. You're not worthy. You're not good. In fact, it very explicitly says there's no one good. No, not one. In other words, there's, there, no one's enough. No one is worthy. No one is good. God alone is good. And that's why there's a brokenness between us and God. That's why there's a separation between us and God. He's good and perfect and holy. And, and, and we are not, we are broken and sinful. God is just, we, we are not. God has the power to create out of nothing. Like we said earlier, we, we don't have that power. We can form things together out of things that have been created, but we can't speak things into existence like El Shaddai can. Our, our, our thinking is broken and messed up. God says, I'm not like you. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are, are higher than, than your thoughts. And so even our own thinking leads us astray and is insufficient. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 1 that our minds have been darkened and cursed by sin. So the ideas and the thoughts and the opinions that we have about mankind or this life or who God is or right and wrong, Paul says, you just come up with foolish ideas because your thinking is not like God's. Jeremiah writes in his book and says, the heart is deceitful above all else. So our culture will say, follow your heart. Jeremiah would say, don't follow your heart. It's deceitful above all else. So the Bible says your, your emotions and your ideas will lead you astray 10 times out of 10. Because even in our very thinking or in our emotion, we are broken and cursed and not like God. So you could put it like this. Mankind is insufficient. In every part of who we are, in our nature, in our being, we are insufficient. God is all sufficient in all things. You could say mankind is insufficient in all things, but here's the good news. Our insufficiency is and can be fully satisfied in his sufficiency. We are insufficient. God is all sufficient. And so the great news is that our insufficiency is fully satisfied in his sufficiency. Now you might be thinking, that's kind of a mouthful. What does that really mean? What does that mean for his sufficiency to fulfill and to meet and to overwhelm and to overflow our insufficiency? Well, let's chat about that for a second. Here's what this looks like. When your insufficiency meets his all sufficiency in all things. What, what happens here? Well, number one, you're generous. You're generous, right? I mean, when God's very nature and being is, is all sufficient, what's the natural overflow of that? It's to bless, it's to give. That's why Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because when 
you're fully satisfied in God and in your relationship with him, you're, you're generous. You just want to give and bless people and support the spread of the gospel. It's just a natural overflow of who you are. No one's having to tell you to do it. No one's making you do that. It's not drudgery for you to give of your time and money to the spread of the gospel or to those in need. No, no, no. When you're satisfied in God and his sufficiency is filling your insufficiency, you're just by nature now, you're just a, you're a generous person. Next, you're humble. In our insufficiency, we're self-centered, we're selfish, we're greedy, we want more and more and more and nothing ever satisfies us. But in our, when, when our insufficiency meets God's sufficiency in all things, we're, we're humble. It's been said that Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find some bread. I mean, the creed of the Christian is I'm sick and broken in my sin and I need a healer. I need a doctor to come and fix me. I mean, that's what Jesus said, right? I came to call the sick, not the healthy. I came to call those who know they're sinners, not people who think they're righteous. And so the creed of the Christians, I'm sick. I'm a broken wretch of a sinner and I need a doctor. I need a healer. I need a savior to come and save me. So there's no room for arrogance in the life of a Christian. There's no room for boasting in the life of the Christian. That's why Paul said, I'm not going to boast in anything except the cross of Christ. I have nothing to boast about except what Jesus has done in me and for me and through me. I will only boast in him. And so there's no room for pride or arrogance in the life of a Christian because the Christian says, I'm so broken and sick and messed up. I needed a savior. I needed a doctor to come and heal me. Next, you're encouraging. In our insufficiency, again, we're, we're selfish. We're envious. We feel good when someone gets knocked down a little bit, when someone doesn't succeed. We're jealous, we're angry, we're bitter when someone else succeeds or when someone else gets what we want. When someone else experiences something we think that we're owed or, or that we deserve. But when we're finding our satisfaction in God and his all sufficiency in all things is filling our insufficiency, you can encourage people. You, you get to celebrate their victories and their wins. You become an encouraging person. It's just by nature who you become when you're totally and completely satisfied in God and his sufficiency is filling all your insufficiency. You become an encouraging person. Next, you're enough. You ever feel like you're not enough? I do all the time. I'll, I'll, I'll just be real with you. Like I always feel like I don't have what it takes. Like, like right now, our, I'll just, again, I'm just gonna be real with you. Like 
Our, our, our church as a whole, like it's, it, it's growing and we have more staff and we're in a budget season. We're like, we're budgeting for, for next year. And we're seeing like, okay, this is how much money's coming in and this is how much we can budget. And, and so we're thinking, oh, this is how much we're going to need per month in order to meet all these expenses and all this kind of stuff. And we're doing all this and, and, and we're at, we're adding staff and, and, and it's, it can overwhelm me. And I'm like, I don't have what it takes to do this, to lead this and to make all this happen. Like you start to feel like it's all on you. And I feel, I start feeling like I'm not enough. Like I, I don't have what it takes. And here's what our culture would try to do or say to me. No, you can do it. You are enough. You do have what it takes. And that is a lie from hell because I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. That's the truth. That's the truth. I'm not enough and I don't have what it takes. And when you can get to that place, when you can finally humble yourself and say, no, I'm not enough, I don't have what it takes, you will find the pressure will actually fall off. Because then you begin to realize in your humility I'm not enough, but he is enough. He's enough for me. He's enough for you. He's enough for you. He's enough for this church. He, he, he's, he is enough. That's why Paul said, Christ in me is my hope of glory. I'm not my hope of glory. Christ in me is my hope of glory. He's my hope. I'm not. It's not my effort. It's not my gifts. It's not my strengths. It's not my ability. It's all him and what he does in me and through me and in you and through you. And so when you finally get to the point where you realize I'm not, I'm not enough, I don't have what it takes. The pressure falls off and your faith grows and explodes because you know he is enough. He's enough for me. And he's enough for you. And so because I'm in Christ and, and he's in me, now I'm, an, I'm enough, but it's not me. It's him in me. It's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. It's not, I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ. I'm not enough, but he is enough in me. Next, you're content. In our insufficiency, we're greedy, we're, we're selfish. Again, we want more and more and more. But when we are fully satisfied in God and in our relationship with him and his insufficiency is filling, or his sufficiency is filling our insufficiency, now I'm content. That's why Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation and circumstance. Whether I have plenty or whether I'm in need, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. What's the secret, Paul? It's Christ. It's in my relationship with Jesus, it's in living for him. And, and when I'm fully satisfied in him, he's all sufficient in all things in me. And now I'm, now I'm content. You see, we are so tempted and we are so prone to put our trust in things, in people. 
And when they continue to not satisfy, we continue to want more things and more people in this relationship, in that relationship. And it's never enough. But when I'm fully satisfied in God and his sufficiency is filling me up and overflowing me and overwhelming me, now I can enjoy people and things in their proper place. I'm not trusting in them for sufficiency or satisfaction. I'm trusting in God. And because my sufficiency is found in him, now I can properly enjoy things and people in my life. Next, you're calm. When you're insufficient, you're fearful, you're worried, you're frantic. You're scared, you're nervous. But when you're fully satisfied in a relationship with God, there's this supernatural strength and stability about you. See, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, he talked about when you grow in your relationship with Jesus, when you're maturing in a relationship with Jesus, you're, you're, you're not blown back and forth by every wind that comes along. Like you're, you're stable, you're strong. The storm may come, but you're stable and strong because your satisfaction is in God. You're sufficient in God. That's why Jesus said, when you build your life on him and his teachings, you're like a man who builds the house on rock. And when the storms come, your life, your home will stand the test of the storm. There's a supernatural strength and stability and calm in the life of a believer who's fully satisfied in God. But in our insufficiency, we are so quick, especially in this day, to post about every little inconvenience and every little offense. We are so overdramatic about every little thing when we're not finding our sufficiency in God. When you're not fully satisfied in God, you, you'll find that there's this frantic, overdramatic response to everything that happens, even little things. But when you're fully satisfied in your relationship with God, you'll have a supernatural strength, stability, and calm about you. And then finally, you're wise. In our insufficiency, our ideas and our emotions lead us astray because they're under the curse of sin. And so we don't think like God thinks. But when we're fully satisfied in God and his sufficiency is filling us and overwhelming us and, and overflowing up out of us, Paul says in Romans 12, you're, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind and you begin to think differently. Like you begin to think like God thinks, like you begin to have this godly wisdom about you. You know, our culture changes its mind every single day about what's right or what's good, what's wrong. But the Christian who's fully satisfied in God, watch this, has an eternal standard of right and wrong that never changes. And that's a good thing. Any kid who's grown up playing games in the front of their house with the neighborhood kids knows that the worst thing that can happen in any game with the neighborhood kids, the worst thing is for some bully to make up the rules as they go or to change the rules. That's the worst. 
When you have an eternal standard of right and wrong that comes from godly wisdom that's found in his word, all of a sudden you're this wise, strong person because you've got an eternal, never changing standard of right and wrong. And that's a good thing. Chaos. Nothing but chaos comes from an ever changing standard of right and wrong. But wisdom, stability, and strength come from an eternal standard of right and wrong. And that only comes from God because our ideas, our opinions lead us astray every time. But when his sufficiency fills us up, overwhelms us, overflows us, all of a sudden now we've got this godly wisdom. That's a lamp to our feet and a light into your path. And so here's the big idea. Here's the challenge tonight. It's this, it's this God is all sufficient in all the things. God is all sufficient in all the things in everything. God is all sufficient. There's no body and there's no thing that will be sufficient for you, that will satisfy you because only God alone, all El Shaddai is all sufficient in all the things. And we've seen that he's all sufficient for today. And now I want you to see that he's also all sufficient for you forever. Forever, for everything you will ever need Forever, like even in life after death, God is all sufficient. Do you know Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, will live. So Jesus said, I'm all sufficient for you in life after death. How is that possible? Here's how it works. Second Corinthians five, verse 21, Paul says, says this, for God made Christ who never sinned. Jesus was perfect and holy. He never sinned. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, which means he died in our place for our sin. He paid the fine for your sin that you and I owe. He took the wrath of God upon himself through his death on the cross for your sin and my sin. And he died as a sacrifice, an offering in our place for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In other words, so we could be made righteous. Righteous is just a word that means right with God. And so you want eternal life after death? Jesus says, I'm sufficient for you. Because watch this, two things. Number one, Jesus's life is sufficient for me. He lived a perfect, sinless, holy, righteous life. He met, the Bible says, the righteous requirement of the law, which is perfection. He met that. And so when you give your life to Jesus, you get Jesus's perfect life, his righteous standing with God, that becomes yours. And then secondly, watch this, Jesus's death is sufficient for me. The fine he paid for your sin on the cross is sufficient to pay your fine for sin. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. That's the Greek word tetelestai, which means paid in full. Your sin, the fine for your sin has been paid in full through Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus' life is sufficient for you and Jesus' death is sufficient 
for you to make you right with God, to forgive your sin so that you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And some of you, you've been thinking that maybe if I'm a good enough person, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, if I go to church enough times, maybe because I'm here tonight, that if there's a God, then we'll be okay. And the Bible says that's not the case. You've sinned, you've broken God's law, you will pay God's fine for sin, which is eternity separated from him in a place called hell. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place for your sin, to pay the fine that you and I owe. And so tonight I would challenge you to give your life to Jesus. And the Bible says when you give your life to him, You're hidden in Christ and Christ is in you. And so when you stand before God one day, or if you were to die tonight and stand before God right now, you would stand before God, the Bible says, hidden in Christ and Christ in you. So you have this perfect, righteous, holy standing before God. It's Jesus's life in you. And you have nothing to worry about. And that's the great news. Hebrews says that Jesus died once and for all time for all your sin, past, present, and future. So give your life to Jesus that his grace might overflow and cover all your sin. Many years ago, a friend of mine, this missionary in Mexico, told me a story about how these people in this village who had given their lives to Jesus were forced out Militia came in and rounded all the Christians up in this village and forced them out of the village, kicked them out, never to return. They lost their homes. They lost their land. They lost their means of income. They they lost everything. They kicked them out of the village. And so this friend of mine, their ministry rounded up these trucks and vans and they go, went to go pick them up. And the first family they came across was on the side of the highway in the pouring rain. And they got out of their trucks and they went up to this man, this dad, who was standing over his family with a piece of sheet metal, holding it over his family to block the rain from falling on his wife and kids on the side of the road. They had absolutely nothing. And Greg went up to this man and said, brother, you've lost everything your home, your land, clothes, food, you got nothing. You've lost it all for Jesus. And Greg said that man looked back at him with a smile on his face and said, brother, we have Jesus and he's all we need. Man, I pray that could be true in my life. I pray it could be true in yours. Let's pray. God, I pray that tonight by the Holy Spirit's power working in us and through us, God, tonight in this moment, would we find our satisfaction completely and totally in you and our insufficiency tonight, would we find you totally filling us with all of your sufficiency in all things. God, would you do that in us and through us tonight that you, Jesus, would really be all we need. And we pray that in the name of Jesus.